0: This is Life Made Better, a podcast from two coaches with a zest for not only their lives, but yours. In this series, Fleur and Lucia seek out tips, tools, and exercises to inspire you to achieve your dreams and goals. Join us and let's make life better.
1: Welcome to Life Made Better. Today, we have a very, very special episode because we do not have one amazing guest, but two. We have Roy Witten and Scott Roy. Roy and Scott are the founders of Witten Roy Partnership, a sales consultancy firm grounded in their decades of collaborative experience with sales, sales management and transforming human performance. They specialize in serving and serving socially-minded organizations, which involves, as you can imagine, a broad variety of clients from over 40 countries, many different industries and many different sizes. They work with companies that range from global multinational giants to tiny startups that want to change the world. And amongst the many things that they've done together is writing a book, Decision Intelligence Sellings, that just came out and is one powerful tool to help sales teams transform. And trust us, this is one that you would not want to miss out on. Their approach to selling is genuine, is passionate, and it comes from the heart. Not only from theirs, but the companies and clients they serve. But let me give you a heads up. Listening to this powerful duo will not leave you indifferent. I'll come out clean. As coaches, uh, most of us are focused on how best to help our clients. But we frequently forget the importance of also selling what we do. If not deliberately forgetting doing so because we dread the sales part of it. But... Just one conversation with Roy and Scott, and they'll open Pandora's book for you. You'll get inspired, motivated, and most importantly, empower and firmly believe in the power of intelligence selling. But I will let them cover that shortly. Roy, Scott, thank you very much for being with us and welcome to Life Make Better.
2: Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you.
1: So you both have a wealth of experience and journeys that I'm sure our audience will love to hear a bit um, about. So let's begin with you, Roy. Tell us a little bit about your journey and the path that ultimately brought you to where you are today.
2: Well, um, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll turn 73, so I've got a fairly long journey. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, uh, I remember my first, very first job was selling Fuller Brush door to door, the old Fuller Brush company. And uh, when I was in college, did that for about a year. And that's when I first learned how to sell badly. <laughs> and when I finished that, I thought, I don't really, I mean, I love selling, but I don't love that. And so I was very conflicted about it. And early on, I developed a keen interest in how do people actually change. I was 20 years old in the San Francisco Bay Area during the summer of love in 1968. And, you know, the atmosphere was filled with seminars and workshops about everything, all of which were exploring, how do you fulfill your potential. And that kind of marked me for life and set me on my journey. And um, the first thing I did after a university and then graduate school was become a priest in the Episcopal Church. I did that for 10 years uh, in the parish ministry. It was really all about how do you change your life? And um, I got fed up with it after 10 years, stepped away from that job and started with another business partner, a human potential training called the life training, Mm -hmm. and did that for 20 years, during which we had to learn a different way of selling a service that could help you change your life. And that got me starting to think about how do you sell in a way that actually promotes well-being, and uh, did that for 20 years and trained a lot of people, met Scott during that time. Um, At the end of that period of my life, when I retired from that around 2000, I went back and got my PhD in the field of transformative learning and change. I studied formally what I'd been doing in my own program and then became a consultant to business Worked with Scott some more in that capacity. And then in 2009, we started the program. Um, I started our business, Whitman Roy Partnership. Over that time, and you know, I've trained literally hundreds of coaches in a, a way of coaching that actually transformed yourself and other people while you do your work. And we developed a way of selling that is actually, actually about promoting well-being for everybody involved, which actually works better for profitability and long-term sustainability of companies. So that kind of brings me up to this moment and the writing of this, our first book. And so that's a bit about my journey and kind of how I got here. And it's a great place to be.
3: Amazing to meet somebody who's uh, been into transformation for so long. So we're so pleased to have you both here today. uh, Tell us about your story and why sales and why approaching it in this way.
0: Well, you know, I'm 10 years younger than Roy, so I've got a completely different perspective. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, I actually come from a background in sales uh, when I was 20. I uh, was at university and a friend of mine had gone out the previous summer and had made $4,500. Four thousand five hundred dollars. It was in his pocket at the end of the summer, and that was a lot of money back in nineteen seventy six. And uh, I made about a third of that, which was still a lot of money. And I said, "How did you do that? Was it legal?" You know, and 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 he said, "Yeah, I was selling books door to door." And I said, "All right, sign me up. Get me a job. I'll, I'll do it. I don't care what it is, as long as it's legal. I need to make money to pay for school." So that's how I got into it. And um, and so very fortunately. I was actually involved with a company that is one of the most venerable oldest companies in the United States uh, called the Southwestern Company. And um, I was trained by really great sales trainers and really a really great sales school. And so I'm one of the fortunate ones who didn't have to just learn selling from getting out on the streets, but I learned from professionals who really taught me about how to, you know, how to approach the job, how to talk to clients, customers, and then also how to manage, uh, or at least to be aware of my attitude and its ups and downs, and how important it was to commit to something and follow it through. So all the basics were there, and then I got into sales management with them. I I turned out to be pretty good at it. I was one of the top salespeople in the company. There are about five thousand salespeople that worked in the company, and I did that for five years and learned how to recruit, train, manage, motivate, all the nuts and bolts of that. Then I became a sales manager with the company for six years and then eventually then got into the insurance business and then built a, a national insurance company from scratch uh, with a couple of other partners and then stopped working at age 40. I had you know, hit it and you know, we, we had a business that was very successful and I decided I wanted to do something else. And so, anyway, I got into some nonprofit work at that time, found out how hard it is to run a nonprofit organization as opposed to a profit seeking organization, then got into consulting uh, a little bit later on in my life, about the age of 50. Uh, but one of the most interesting experiences of my entire life was when I um, a- answered an ad in the newspaper, I read an article, excuse me, in the newspaper here in London called uh, the, the, well, there was the times, obviously, you know, the paper and uh, in the article said wanted chief executive officer CEOs to make, you know, two pounds, 30 to five pounds, 10 per day. You know, are you interested? And it's like, I answered that. I, I looked at it. I went, what, what in the world are they talking about? And they were talking about voluntary service overseas VSO. And so they said, look, we need really experienced business people and teachers and doctors and that kind of thing to volunteer uh, for up to six months and go and live in a different country. And so I thought that was a cool thing. And so I did, I went to Cambodia and I lived there for six months and I really made the connection between my skills and knowledge in selling and building organizations and management and all of that, and actually addressing poverty. So that is sort of in a parallel universe next to my relationship with Roy and our work together in building WRP over the last 10 years.
1: Oh, I love that. And what I love hearing is how for both of you, that sort of linking it to the core of your heart and having the well-being came very deeply and very rooted from the very beginning. Both of you, like, obviously, different journeys and different ways in which you experience it. But, you know, it's, it's amazing how you end up going to, the same point, which I guess you know, is one of the core messages that we've re- we've read in the book, and it's one of the core cool things that it shines through when you see the work that you do. So I'm curious because we also mentioned at the beginning that you help these socially minded organizations and those ha- who are generally concerned about this well being. So how did you make this your purpose and? have you found many resistance from organizations when you were trying to implement it? Because let's face it, it's a, it's a, you know, mind blowing approach to sales.
0: As I tell people, we were just sort of in the right place at the right time. And I had the right conversation with the right person. And it was a guy named Mike Roberts, uh, who is the country director for a, a large international NGO. And he said to me, he said, you know, Scott, this was back in 2007. He said this to me, he said, you know, philanthropy and and you know funding of do good projects is shifting and it's shifting away from giving things away to people to actually developing something called a social enterprise which is actually selling goods to people even very poor people where you know products have been developed specifically for that market they're scaled financially so that people can afford them you say and uh, so he said look we know we need to go that way we just don't know how to do it. And just the, 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 the the potential that I see about what, you know, and your willingness to want to work in a do good environment is a very powerful, uh, combination. And so anyway, he got some funding and he brought me back the next year, paid for me to come out to Cambodia. And it was to, uh, build a, um, Within their NGO, a sales operation that would sell seeds and fertilizer and some other sort of simple agricultural implements, et cetera, to smallholder farmers who only earn two or three dollars a day, and to teach them how to make more money at what they do by knowing how to plant better and plant different uh, seeds. And um, so, sure enough, I went out there and spent six weeks and designed everything that they needed to get the business going. And then they did it for a year. Then I came back a year later and look what they had done. It was amazing. And then I came in and designed another piece for them and, and so on and so forth. We've had a very long relationship, Mike and I have had. Uh, I've worked with uh, the agricultural part, the sanitation. Uh, this is with toilets, bringing toilets to people who've never had toilets before, You know, who literally used to go in the bushes and also water filters and water water filtration, all within this one organization. And to really install a sales approach so that, A, people, when they go through a sales experience, they buy in and they buy in more deeply. So therefore, the the projects are more effective. You know, the smallholder farmers actually plant the seeds. You know, they actually, heart, you know, they take care of them, you say, because they've got their money in it. And so that whole process of doing what we call social enterprise, where you actually have people invested in the solution is a real key thing of of what's going on right now in, in eradicating poverty around the world and bringing people, you know, step by step on the rung of the ladder out of poverty. And sales is a very key part of that. And you're absolutely right. Certain organizations resist that. We're not coming in to tell an organization that they should do this. They already have told us, yes, we need to do this, but we don't know how to do this, or we are doing it and we're not very good at it. Can you help us? But that doesn't mean that all of the people who work in those organizations now are all on board with a sales approach. So you're absolutely right. We need to work with them to help them understand really what good selling is. And it's very different than what most people think.
3: Yeah, what I'm hearing is one of both of you wanting to make a difference But the power of, you know, if you can sell, you can transform lives because people need money for freedom. People need money to live. So Mm -hmm. this is a much bigger vision, mission for both of you, I think, what I'm hearing, to be able, for people to be able to be good at sales. It's not just about salesmen in a corporation. It's a whole, being able to sell as a whole bigger
2: problem for people Uh, absolutely and i in um, my previous organization that i'd co-founded one of the great frustrations was that we had a great product we had a product that just stood on its own and we could almost guarantee that if people would come to the seminars and the workshop put in the time for this intensive seminar they would leave with their life changed in a significant way. I mean, it was a damn good product Mm -hmm. and we didn't know how to sell it. (laughs) And you can have, and it's the same thing we found throughout the world, but especially in the developing world, where people who really want to have impact and come up with really innovative designs that can lift people out of poverty, change, save lives, you know, really do really worthwhile things, they actually believe that if they have the right product, it will somehow magically sell itself. I found that especially true for all of the coaches that I've trained over, you know, 40 years, that they just actually believe that they're good people and they've really got a technique down and they care for what they're doing, that that will somehow magically draw people to them and they will have plenty of work. And most of them don't, because they don't know how to sell what they're doing. And I found it fascinating. It's One of the reasons I I chose to partner up with Scott was that I, having failed at selling, I wanted to see if the two of us, well, having failed at selling, and then what really convinced me that we should partner up was we had two years together from 2007 to 2009, where as independent business consultants, we were put together, reunited. We've known each other for years. We're reunited by this consultancy to develop the internal sales academy for one of England's large high street banks. They had 1,100 branches, 17,000 people, and we developed their sales academy, where they trained their own people how to sell. And I was very taken with the fact that you can have the best product in the world, but if you don't know how to sell it, you're not going to have the impact you want. And that two-year experience with Scott convinced me this was a guy I wanted to work with because I wanted to have impact. I thought transformatively we could do that. And when we put our kind of combined experience and expertise together we found a way to transform the way that selling is done because the resistance that you mentioned Fleur, we do run into but the resistance is all based in a view of selling that is simply not true because we have found around the world, whether you're in a huge multinational corporation selling technology to companies around the world, or you're a social entrepreneur wanting to sell your solar powered light that, that cures jaundice in children who were born out in the bush in Africa. No matter who you are, almost everybody believes that selling is some dark art of talking people into buying stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. I was one of those people, and I didn't. It didn't sit well for me being a teacher originally. That you know that you were persuading someone to buy something, and I could relate to what you were saying about. I thought just because I was a really good coach, I would get loads and loads of clients, and you know that hasn't been the case. You know, I have got word of mouth clients, but it's not been as busy as I thought it would be. And I think, and I also thought, you know, I it, selling didn't sit well to me at all. And when I read your book and in the first few pages, you went into a sales company and it, the salespeople were not proud of their job. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, even people that are selling have that feeling that selling's not right. And I think it's because of their approach, isn't it?
2: Which yeah. is- well, it's because of believing that it's about pitching and persuading and pressuring people and who wants to live like that?
0: Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. So, yeah, well, that's uh, very true. I mean, you know, like Dan Pink a few years ago wrote the book To Sell as Human, and he was trying to normalize the fact that all of us in some form or fashion are selling or convincing or influencing people. So he got he got half of it right, okay, and that is that, yes, it's true, is that, is that all of us in some form, form or fashion are doing that. But the part he didn't get right was the understanding of how you go about doing that. And that is that that, you, you know, we have found and I and I've done it both ways and Roy's done it both ways as well. Fortunately, it was a long time back in my career, my first 10 years where I was taught a real convincing pitching style, you know, where I had a great product and it really was. I, I mean, I've always been blessed with having products I've really believed in to sell. And so that makes a very big difference. But being an evangelist, and pitching and persuading and convincing and eventually getting to the point where the person isn't quite convinced yet because they don't even know what the need is they've got necessarily, then they, the prospect can begin feeling pressure. And none of us want to do that to people. And so that's that's the fundamental difference of how Roy and I see selling is we see selling as being, uh, you know, what we call decision intelligence, DQ, like IQ which is academic or intellectual intelligence, or EQ, which is emotional intelligence. DQ is decision intelligence. And what that means is that salespeople who use DQ are committed to helping their customers or their prospects make the very best possible decision, you know, for themselves or for their family. And the way you do that is by exploring two subjects very thoroughly. One is, what is the problem or what are the set of problems I have I would like to solve? And then really plumbing the depths of that to really begin to see the impact of those problems and to see, is this something like, you know, so for example, if you're selling coaching services, you know, you hear somebody goes, yeah, you know, I just can't, you know, I, I just, I just am so disorganized, you know, and your, your coaching brain goes on and go, hey, I can help you. You know, let me tell you about how I can help you. And then you get into a pitching mode. instead. What we would advocate is, oh, okay, so you have a difficult time staying organized. And then just stop talking and then allow them to go ahead and continue. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, I've got all my, you know, this and my desk and I'm now working from home and I don't have an office and all that. I see. So you're, what you're having difficulty with is getting organized in a new space and, you know, you're having difficulty because you're having to work from home. Yeah. And then, and then the person continues. And what's that like for you? And you know, what, what, do you find, what do you find that you're struggling with with that? And what's the impact on your work and the quality of it and your enjoyment of it? And so what we've learned to do is unpack the problem. And once you do that, then the person, and actually what we do is help people to estimate what it's costing them, both qualitatively and quantitatively, really in dollars and cents or pounds and pence. And then once people are able to see what it's costing them, then the question is, do you want to do something about this? Is the problem serious enough? If you want to do something about it? And it's like at that point, it's either a yes or a no. And if it's a yes, well, you're three quarters of the way home. And now you just literally talk about the solution that you have and what value that's going to bring. And so pitching then comes in at that point, once the problem is defined in that way. Does that make sense? Yes, so it's like, it it's like let's. Define the problem, and then let's go ahead and see if we've got something to solve it.
1: And what I'm hearing, and I'm loving, I've got to say, is that, then I think this is something that is also in your book, when you go by default onto that pitching mode, you're missing out completely what your client is needing. And yeah. I love, I think it's the very few first pages, that you guys actually went to a so-called pitch um, and instead of bombarding that potential client with this is what I can do for you, you just came up with your notebook, a pen <laughs> and said, right, okay, so what are your challenges? What are you struggling with? How can we help you? What do you need help with? And I think this is something, obviously in sales, it does happen a million times, but I would go farther and say in our daily lives, how many times we miss out on Opportunities to make our lives and the lives of those around us better by just asking, How can I help? How can I make Mm. it better? What's Mm. troubling you? And it's funny because I've read it, I certainly thought it's not rocket science, but yet we are not doing it. So why do you guys think we are not doing it? What's stopping us from stepping into that let's do zone? That's such a great
0: question. And I'm not gonna answer it. I'm gonna put I'm gonna I'm going to preface it and then I'll let Roy answer it. And this is what I learned from Roy back in 1986. Uh, And I went to the seminar that he and his organization put on called the life training. And I spent three days, about 36 hours learning about attitude and learning about mindset and how to manage it in a way that you could really transform your performance and transform your state of mind and transform your, your enjoyment you know, the love of your life, you know, you, how you could transform that. I got so turned on by this experience and it was a, you know, deeply experiential uh, program. Uh, you know, I went back to work on Monday as a sales manager and I took all the lessons and the learning I had and started using what I learned, using how you know, the, the techniques and everything, using them with my people. And all of a sudden it was having a big impact on my people. Salespeople are notorious for having ups and downs emotionally, you know, and, you know, when you're selling well, you have your attitudes up when you're not selling well, your attitudes down. Right. And so I I learned from Roy about this. And so, Roy, I'm going to throw the ball to you to take it further about what's different about this.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Before I talk directly about the transformational part of that, I want to build slightly on what you said, Scott. And make sure that your listeners are really hearing the point, because there are a lot of people who try to sell what they've got. They hear, well, I need to listen to the other person's problem. And so they start there and they listen just long enough to hear something that they know they can fix. And then they start pitching. They will keep doing that as long as they think selling is about convincing other people to buy. But the moment you change your point of view on what selling is, from I've got to convince others, that's what selling is, to my job in selling is to raise their DQ, not my DQ, their DQ their decision intelligence, their ability to make the best possible decision. Then the question becomes, how do I do that? How do I raise the things for them that they need to think about in order to have enough DQ to fully understand the problems they're trying to solve and then fully understand the solution I'm offering and see if they match how do I do that and I want to make sure that something Scott said didn't go by too quickly because it's not just about having them understand their problems better that's really important like Scott's your example about uh, just don't feel organized and COVID's making me work out of my house and You know, you really need to help raise their awareness, you know, about, well, how are you disorganized? Tell me all the ways you're disorganized. Where is this? And then the second part of it is, and how and what is it costing you to be this disorganized? Mm -hmm. How much business are you losing? What's frustration are you experiencing? How much money are you not making because you can't get your to-do list in order? or your priorities what is the price you're paying for this in dollars and pen you know in pounds let alone in emotional frustration and worry and anxiety add up that cost to these problems and say are you tired of paying the price now they're ready to hear what you have to offer exactly but not until then. Mm-hmm. And if you offer what you have to offer before they raise their DQ to that point, that's when they say, yeah, let me think about it. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So in the book you really talk about, um, I'd like you to explain this to our listeners, so I think it's really valuable, is the fact of we're on autopilot.
2: That's where I was going to go next, that the reason people do that, the reason we stay stuck thinking of selling as convincing, all goes back to something that happened to us when we were about five. I don't know if you've got, you, some of you, you guys have small children, and you'll notice in the really young ones before five-ish, they are completely present in the, to the moment. They learn how to Walk, talk, sing, dance, speak multiple languages. You know, nothing slows them down. They're completely fearless. And then starting about age five, you're going to start noticing, and it's tragic, but you'll notice with your children that a certain amount of self-doubt starts creeping in. And they start saying things like, well, I can't draw. I can't really can't sing. I really can't dance. And that's because at age five, Neuroscience has shown us that right up in the frontal lobe of the brain, the cerebral cortex, a part of the brain develops that starts commenting and drawing conclusions about our lives. It takes whatever happens, you know, two kids are sitting together in kindergarten and often tell the story. It's like if Scott and I knew each other at five years old, Scott's a great artist and I'm not. Uh, so far, but it 's like if we 're five years old we 're sitting together and i 'm drawing my little stick figure, and I look over and scott 's drawn the Mona Lisa, and a teacher comes by and goes, "Scott, you are an artist," and I look up expectantly, and they go, "Very nice, Roy, keep keep trying, my little brain up till about five that just doesn 't even bother me. I keep drawing." starting around five-ish, six-ish, my little brain goes, Scott's an artist, I'm not. And that's when I stop drawing. That happens to all of us. And that is when we start going on autopilot about the way we think. It's when we start drawing along the way, we draw conclusions about selling, that it's about pitching and persuading And we go on autopilot about that and something has got to wake us up or all we do is resist having to sell or being sold. And if you can learn how to wake people up and you do that by raising their DQ, taking them through four conversations. One is what are the problems you're trying to solve? Secondly, what price are you paying for not solving them? Thirdly, what's the solution that I'm offering that could help you with that? And fourthly, what would the value of that be for you? If you could solve these problems with this solution, what would that mean to you? How much money would you earn? What would you do with that money? How happy would you be? How satisfied with being able to make a living doing what you really believe in? What would that be like for you? to make your money that way instead of having it be a hobby.
0: And when people buy in, if they have that experience, they're buying in at a level that they're very serious about doing it and doing it well. You know, for example, if you're selling coaching services and someone buys in at that level, you know, you've got someone who's really, who's really been honest and forthright with himself and with the coach and saying, yeah, it's time. I'm in, you know. It's the very same reason why this selling methodology, you know, where it's so committed to helping the other person make the best possible decision, it's why it works in selling, let's say, sanitary latrines in Cambodia or Ethiopia or wherever it might be, where somebody buys a toilet for the first time in their entire life. You know, it's buying in this way creates a behavioral change. It starts a behavioral change. You say that sticks. So therefore this kind of selling is, is pretty much, you know, across the board. We haven't found a single project where it doesn't fit. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we've done about 380 or so projects total over the last 10 years. And our projects, by the way, are not just sales training. Our projects are actually sales transformation where we're working with you know, the, the organization to help them with, you know, with how they recruit their people, how they train them, how they manage them, how they, you know, it's a, it's quite a comprehensive type of approach. Part of it is sales training, but, uh, but, you know, it's a whole process. And, um, and, you know, the, the one piece I think, Roy, that I'd love to hear you speak more on is, is the importance of attitudinal management and, and how to go about doing that because that's something that I think, every professional person has to deal with, any person has to deal with is how do you manage your attitude when things are not going well? And so Mm -hmm. I learned it from this guy, you see, and then I took it into my business and then integrated into everything that we did. All of our sales techniques, all of our management techniques, all of our management practices, et cetera, all built around managing attitude.
1: Mm -hmm. And what I... What go ahead back to that because i think it's something that roy i think you would be it would be great hearing you on that too what i'm loving hearing is that obviously attitude is playing a key fundamental factor in here but what i also love hearing is the fact that we are touching up on accountability and this goes on both ends obviously is the attitude of the salesperson and mm-hmm. roy, it'd be great to hear you about that but also mm. the certain level of accountability in there in mm-hmm. the same to manage that attitude and to understand how to transform that but also to your clients because you are going at it saying like look we do not have a problem here you do and I'm here to help you solve it to the best of my abilities but you need to tell me what you want and I think quite frequently we just expect a client to come with that magic wand and say and this is what I want give it to me <laughs> and it's our job to say, look, this is not my job. My job is to help you get there. But, you know, the ball is on your roof. It's all about you. So I'd love, I'd love to hear your take on that, on those two, Roy. Tell about the attitude and the accountability.
2: And the accountability of your client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, when Scott and I were, we decided to go into business. It was March 26, 2009. And we were sitting in the old Thameside pub on the River Thames, looking across the river n- underneath the London Bridge. And the first question we asked ourselves, because we'd both retired at that point, <laughs> right? And it was like, and, you know, do we, what's going to be worth it to go into business together? You know, do I really want to leave home more? And if I'm going to leave home the first question we asked each other was what sort of client do we really want? Because when I think about all of your all of the coaches that are you your audience here, I've been a coach and have done it for a long time and there is nothing worse than a crap client. <laughs> a client that is not accountable, that thinks you're responsible for their success, that expects to just unload on you, and 10 minutes later, get a three-point program to change everything in their life overnight. True story, though. Yeah. Well, I've been there, you know. And, and there's nothing worse than that. And so when you're selling, you're actually you're, you're interviewing for clients. You're really looking and saying, do I want to leave home for you? Do I want to invest my precious life and time for you? And how am I going to find out if you're the sort of person that I want to spend time with? I know that sounds perhaps selfish and self absorbed, but it's like I can't do great work if I don't have somebody who's a partner who's really partnering up with me, telling me what they need, going out on a limb, in it for the long haul, you know, really willing to make it work. It's like when I was coaching, I would go an extensive interview process. And then if I thought it was really going to work, I would say, all right, I'll be your coach, but you're going to pay me X amount of dollars at the start of every month for the coaching that's going to happen in the next 30 days. And you can, you can contact me all you want, which is why I was very careful to pick people that wouldn't abuse me. And I said, I'll let you know if it's ever too much, but you're going to pay me ahead of time so that you can really go to work. And then we went to work. Now, all of this is about how do you create a mindset for yourself and in people that will work because one of the things that Scott did when he came to the training, I was doing in 1986. You got it. I finally remembered the date. Scott's much better on dates than I am. I, I, They all zoom around in my mind when he came to the training. And he, then as he said, the next day he applied this to his work. I have never seen anybody in the tens of thousands of people I trained over those 20 years. I've never seen anybody apply it to their life and business like Scott did. And he developed a formula that we have put into the book, Decision Intelligence Selling, called R equals A plus C plus E. The results you want, namely great clients and success, where they really change themselves, results are a function of A, attitude, C, competence, and E, execution. The main one is A, a change of perspective, a change of the way you think, and the ability to manage your own state of mind instead of circumstances managing it for you. That where you stop being a victim of what happens to you, Where in the words of George Bernard Shaw, you become a feverish little clod complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. You know, you get over that and you become the author of your own life. Now, as a coach, that's who you want to work with. And as a coach, that's what it's your job to help people become, isn't it? Mm -hmm. People that can really be that accountable. So how do you do that? First thing is that you need to become aware of the fact that your attitude goes up and down all day long, right? And it's mostly a function of reacting to what happens to you. Stuff happens that we like, we go up in our attitude. Stuff happens we don't like, we go down. As Scott said, it's especially true for salespeople who run into a lot of negativity because people are on the defensive about being convinced about stuff. So attitude goes up and down in relation to what happens to you. But what's really going on, and sure, in the moment, stuff happens and you feel badly, you can legitimately say in the moment, that made my attitude go down. Because if you figure, Picture a horizontal line. And your attitude's up if you're above the line, or it's down if you're below the line. Something happens that's hurtful, that is painful, that is a negative surprise. Okay, you can say that put me below the line. That's legitimate. But an hour later, a week later, a month later, 10 years later, if you're still whining about that thing that happened, It's no longer the fault of that thing that you're below the line. You were putting yourself below the line by continuing to rehash it. Now, that process of rehashing is the same process I was talking about earlier that started in us at age five with the development in the front part of our brain It draws conclusions about what happens to us. That was right. That was wrong. Shoulda happened. Shouldn't have happened. They're to blame. I'm to blame. Then what it does is it makes demands on us about what we now have to do. You got to fight. You got to get tough. You got to lay back. You got to see which way the wind's blowing. And then it makes to make sure we do those things. It makes predictions about what's going to happen if we don't do them. You're never going to get ahead. Other people will always tromp on you if you don't defend yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And that process started at about age five, solidified itself, neuroscientists tell us, around age 22, 21. And that is what puts us below the line. And that is the process you've got to learn to intervene on or you will never be able to manage your own attitude. But once you learn how to do it, then all of a sudden you can start running your life and being fully accountable to yourself. And the way you do it is you learn how to bring yourself to the present moment. We have a technique, not original with us. We found it from a guy who was a Sufi teacher. It's called split attention. And it is how you can stay right with whatever you're doing and at the same time, put part of your attention on something physical, like you'll see if you can see on the video that we're on, the four of us, and I'm touching my fingers together. It's the way I do it when I'm speaking. And as long as when I'm talking to you, and you can hear the difference in my voice now, that I've started to do it again. I slow down a little bit, I get more thoughtful. And this is me getting a little less automatic more home and more and more above the line. And when you learn how to do that and do it a lot, then all of a sudden you can really start offering yourself to other people in a way that lifts their DQ instead of gets all wrapped up trying to convince them to buy your services. But that process of being on autopilot below the line is an automatic process, that if you're ever gonna take charge of your life, that's what you gotta tackle first.
3: What I'm hearing is that automatic is our survival instinct, isn't
2: it, Roy? It's like chicken and egg. It's like what comes first, the survival instinct or the autopilot. And what really comes first is something happens, and your mind, as it's been telling you ever since you around five, six, seven, eight, it says, oh my God, here's that situation again. Here's that bully. Here's that person that doesn't take me seriously. Here's this, here's that. I can't cope. I've got to do this. I've got to convince them. I've got to lay back till they go away. Whatever it is that tells you, that is what creates the fear of survival. Yeah. And then all of your activity after that, Becomes what is called survival instinct,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you can manage all that.
1: It's you don't about have to live that it. cycle, isn't it? It's how you learn to rewire those cables if you wish.
3: Which, yeah,
1: you know, is the game changer. That's when the magic starts to happen. That's when you're raising your DQ, as you were saying, and become that person that is trustworthy and the person that people want to do business with in real life and, you know, in personal life and in business
0: life, I believe. Yeah, interesting that you're using the word rewiring because we actually have a process called rewiring, which is, you know, exactly, uh, you know, applying the skill of split attention to habits, things that we're stuck in, you know, and we want to shift it because, you know, we've learned over the last, about 20 years ago in neuroscience Neuroplasticity has become sort of a hot word. A lot of people use it. They don't know how to. They don't actually know how to do anything with it, but they talk about it. <laughs> and essentially, what it's saying is your your brain is not encased in concrete. It's you know you actually can rewire the actual connections in your brain so that you know you you can actually gain movement back in parts of the body that have lost that movement or is as we've done it is uh, start applying it to habits, beliefs, etc., where people can literally rewire their thinking and to think something different and and do that permanently, more or less. And isn't that? Great thing.
3: Sorry, what I also really um, related to in the book is when you talk about aiming for your desires. Yeah. yeah. The fact is, if we don't really know what we're aiming for, how are we going to? get there. And I thought that that was, you know, getting people to really connect to their why is so important in this process, isn't it?
0: Totally. In fact, it's, it's central to, you know, if we, if we start thinking about coaching, or for that matter, sales management, which I think is really a form of coaching. I mean, I've, I've managed about 2000 salespeople in my life. So I (laughs) I have pretty good experience with doing that. Um, And what I found was that, when I came in with my targets and my demands on my salespeople, it wasn't nearly as impactful as I asked them what their car, what their goals were and what their why they or you know what they wanted to achieve and how much money they wanted to earn, rather than my targets and what you know what our company needed to earn. And so when I started asking them what they wanted to achieve, and then I would say, "And you want that because you want what?" they say, well, I want that because I need to pay my bills. Okay. This is very practical oftentimes. And then it's like, okay, well, and you, you, you want to pay your bills so that mm. you can do what? Well, so that I can feel free of, you know, kind of that burden every month, you know, and that fear of not making ends meet, you know, I, I really want to be free of that. Okay. And you want to be free of that because you want what, you know, and so you keep asking that just keep reframing, rephrasing it and saying, I I get that, and what else do you want? And you want that because you want what? And all of a sudden, you tap into this incredible power, this brilliance, and passion, and deep desire that all of us have inside of us that just needs to be unlocked. And I think that's what the brilliance of what a coach does, what a, a leader does, I think what a sales manager does, any person, a friend, what a friend can do for another person. Instead of giving advice, is literally just listening and helping the person find their way, as opposed to giving them the answer. And, and not only will a person lock onto that passion and then decide what they're actually going to do. In other words, they decide what their very next step is going to be or, you know, what their plan is, et cetera, what they're aiming at, you know, and and what how they're going to get there. They begin plotting their steps. They're much more likely to follow through with those they're much more likely to follow through even when it gets real, especially when it gets really difficult and they start getting, you know, negative feedback or whatever that, you know, this isn't working or you're not getting what you want so far. People will become more persistent. You know, they'll learn as they go. They become uh, learners and they learn very, very rapidly in that moment when they're on purpose and they know their why. That's one of the most powerful things. In fact, I learned that model. Uh, from my time with Roy 30 years ago it's actually a model that was developed by a guy named uh, John Hoover who is a guy who is just an amazing psychologist and we use some of his stuff in our work uh, which is what we call purpose generator where you generate purpose I you know and I choose this because what I want is and then you generate purpose out of that so I agree with you totally that the why is really critical
3: yeah to re- ways people learn best, coming from a learning perspective, is emotional engagement, which is what you're getting by connecting to their why, Mm -hmm. and building to what they already know. Mm -hmm. So unless you know what they know, how do you know, They, they don't know how you can help them, you don't know how that you can help them.
0: Yeah, well one of the things, you know, just that I've learned in this process is that when you get somebody into the why and, and answering the questions of why they want to do something and they, it can get, it, you know, it, it, will get quite deep, quite emotional, quite personal. And it's not uncommon for people to feel deep, deeply held and deeply felt emotion. And what's really important we have found is that you don't just leave somebody there in that deep emotion and think they're, they're across the line because you know, they may be, Across the line, but let's really help them land on the other side of the line. And what we find is, now that you know why you're wanting to do this, how are you actually going to do it? How? How are you? You know, what are you going to do? Concrete by when? <laughs> and how? How are you going to be while you're doing it? You see? And when you get a setback, how are you going to be? You know. This is
2: where we've. Uh we found so valuable in our work, a phrase that we learned from David Allen, you know, the getting things done guy, who's in fact very generously agreed to endorse our book. You'll see his endorsement right on the front cover and his marvelous concept of very next step, which is now that you're in touch with your why, you're in touch with emotionally with what really matters to you. What is your very next step that you're gonna take to put that into concrete reality, into action? What's your step and when will you take it? That's where accountability gets built. Mm -hmm. And that's where the rubber meets the road and theory turns into action and emotional engagement turns into a commitment to live your life differently. And that's when transformation happens. Mm. And a coach needs to be able to help all of that happen for their person. Mm. And that's why a good coach is absolutely indispensable to people.
1: Well, what I'm loving hearing here, and I'm so, not saying it's simple, but the concept of it is, is that mm-hmm. it only takes two things to truly transform, transform your life, which is, being aware of what you want and why you want it, connecting to that source and to your purpose, and just take one step, one little step towards it.
2: I would agree with those two things, Lucia, 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 (laughs) but I would preface it with, if you can be splitting your attention, if you can be fully present, yeah, Your ability to do those two things is magnified by a hundredfold. If you're not fully present, you will do those two things the same old autopilot way with the same old list of resolutions to be better tomorrow, and it just won't work.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
3: Continue the cycle.
1: Yeah. Well guys, I feel like we could do serious for this and get you coming and, and you know, unveiling more and more of this juicy stuff. I also feel like we've given away half of your book content. <laughs> <laughs> I'm positive
2: for that. <laughs> well, that's why we wrote the book. You know, we just I, just imagine, you know, you, you everybody gets worried about giving away what they got and not protecting their intellectual property. And I d we've really adopted the position of Worst case, we write a book that nobody ever hires us again because they can all go make it work. (laughs) Well, you know, that's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's not bad. We'll just stay home more. Um, and, and and instead, and what we'll do is we'll just stay home more, play. Finally, get back to playing more golf, like we decided <laughs> we were going to do. We love golf <laughs> together, and it would be wouldn't it be something if people could read something in a book and go put it to work? And we hope they can do that. We've made it as practical as we can. And fully expecting that people will get into it and there'll be parts they can really do and there'll be some parts that they need some help with and they can call, they can write us for those parts. Yeah. And go to our website and write us. And we're happy to help with any little bit or more of a bit, whatever it is they need. And if they don't need us, great, go make it work.
3: I, I also think there's so much in there for everybody, for parents to be working with their children or relationships, because you know the the acronym you use for clear conversations. I mean that is helpful, but everybody. Mm.
0: Yeah, we've heard that same. We've heard we've heard that from many many people, and in fact, uh, what I've really sort of gotten switched on by is I've gone into Amazon and I've seen the uh, reviews that people have been leaving after reading the book. And, you know, I got to say about half of them are, you know, people who are saying, wow, this is a great sales, you know, perfect. It's, you know, the new way I want to sell, et cetera. The other half of them are going, you know, it's a great sales book, but really it's a book about life. It's about living life fully. It's about getting more of what I want. It's a, you know, (laughs) and we're just tickled about that because, you know, I mean, back, if we look at the roots of the organization and we started in 2009, the reason we decided to go into sales consulting is because, well, we were in the middle of the global financial meltdown at that point. And Roy and I are, you know, we're management consultants, change consultants, what you want to call it, you know, attitude at the core of all that. And so he and I looked at each other and so said, what kind of consulting should we do? I mean, what do you think the world needs to buy right now? And I, I, we, we agreed that, man, they need to know how to sell right now, to get themselves out of the horrible economic condition they're in. So so we both had a really good, good uh, you know, uh, long uh, history in sales, both of us, um, you know, in, in, in different aspects of sales and management. And so that's how we got into sales consulting.
3: You get everybody hearing about IQ and EQ, and I now think that everyone's going to be hearing about DQ. <laughs> decision, making a good decision people really do shy away from.
0: You know, it's so funny, um, Flora, you say that, because um, I remember uh, we were consulting for a firm here in London. It's a consulting, a consulting firm we were consulting for. I always found that kind of interesting. They were teaching, <laughs> we're a consulting firm that teaches another consulting firm how to sell. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but this young man, uh, he was probably mid-30s, uh, was working with one of the big banks and, you know, big global name you would know. He said, um, in a coaching session with me, because we'd we'd done the training and then I was coaching him for three months afterwards. And he came in and he said to me, Scott, you know, DQ is great and I'm using it to sell with, but I was in a meeting with like eight of my people, eight of the people from the client I'm doing my delivery with. And, you know, all of a sudden they got into getting into the solution of what they needed to do to change something, et cetera. And he said, you know, I used DQ in that situation. It wasn't a selling situation. It was we're trying to figure out how to deliver a certain transformation within the business. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, of course it's okay. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean uh, just this morning, I was on a uh, training por- program that I was leading with another one of our consultants. Again, training another consulting firm here in London about how to sell better. And their 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 consultants and their team, some of them were very very afraid of selling. You know, they said, "I don't want to be like a salesperson." And so, what the, where they've gotten to now after four sessions with them of about four hours each? So we have you know got one more full day left with them. Is that they're going? You know, really good selling is almost like really good consulting. And th- and I said, "Yeah, I mean, that's we're, why we're really good or really good coaching." Or really good coaching, and yeah, really good coaching is like good consulting. You know, you really help people identify the problems. You know, then cost of the problem, solution, the fix the problem, and then the value of the solution, and then get, put it into practice.
2: And you know, there's a, just to come to show an application on the whole other end of the scale, from commercial selling to really trying to do some good. I was on a three-hour workshop yesterday with the Episcopal Diocese of Rochester, New York. The bishop, rector of a church, communications director, and we were planning, yesterday we did the workshop for 43 of their diocesan leaders and the people that support new clergy. Rochester is the place where right now they are suffering from significant protests that have turned violent because a young man who was mentally ill named Daniel Prude was uh, detained by the police in a way that he suffocated mm. and they covered it up for a month mm. and uh, for fear of reaction. And now the reaction has happened. And they're trying to minister to a city that is in an uproar. Mm-hmm. And the clergy are saying, my gosh, how what, How do I say anything about this? If I say maybe the police were da-da-da-da-da-da, then the people that are supporting the police come down on my back. If I say, you know, maybe protesters should just shouldn't be violent, then the people on the other side can ask <laughs> me. If I say nothing, then I'm simply enabling what's going on enabling systemic racism enabling systemic lapse into violence as the price for having justice what do we stand for as the church and where they came down on was that where what we stand for is the ability to come to the present moment split attention have a clear, so I taught them clear yesterday. I taught them split attention last time, clear today. Yeah, I've taught them clear, Scott, on how do you have a conversation in which there is such mutual respect and care, you know, and the Christian word for it would be capital L, love, where there is such respect and willingness to hear another opinion that everybody comes away from that conversation changed.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well being is enhanced. And that's what they're aiming to do in their work as a church in Rochester, New York. It's the same thing we're teaching people in selling. It's the same thing about being a human being, being a good parent, being a good friend, being a good colleague, being someone who says, My life in this world will stand for well being instead of just being right. That's where we stand.
1: (laughs) You probably can't see it, but I I can guarantee Floyd has goosebumps, and so do I.
2: So do I. Every time I talk about what really matters to me, I get goosebumps too. So does Scott. <laughs> we, t- we trust goosebumps.
1: That's good. <laughs> but, you know, that is a real clear indication of whether you are connected to purpose, as Robert Scott, you were saying earlier, or not. So, you know, for anybody listening, if you want to feel like being connected to your purpose and keep digging and keep asking, when you get that, you're probably
3: a bang on the money.
2: Mm. I think so.
3: And I know on your um, website, guys, that you've got the um, split attention uh, video, haven't you, that people can? Yes.
0: To.
3: Is that the book or they can go to your website? They can, go,
0: they can go right to the website. They'll have to poke around a little bit to go to the page with the book on it. And then it has yes. res- what it is, additional resources uh, for the book. And then in there is a, a video uh, plus a few forms that uh, salespeople can use as well to get organized
1: super we'll make sure to put that in there in the comments uh, for people to you know connect with you wanting to find out more about you work with you and help them you know put this to practice which I'm sure will be quite a lot so Roy Scott thank you so much for what I found to be a truly inspiring moving conversation which I've got no doubt many of our listeners will Think as well. I'm going to keep an eye on you know the listeners because I can see these growing and growing. So thank you very much for spending this time with us.
2: Thank you're most you you're us. most welcome. Should be. it it's you know we're, you find us on Whitman Roy Partnership, but it's shortened. It's www.wrpartnership.com, and that'll you can find a link to buy the book. You can find a link to get these resources and learn more about. Um, What we're doing, how we do it.
0: And you can go directly to amazon.co.uk or amazon.com and you can purchase the book. It's called Decision Intelligence Selling. And there's the Kindle version as well as a paperback. Hardback will be out very shortly. COVID is delaying it a little bit. So,
2: yeah. Thank you guys for having us, you know, congratulations on your podcast and to all of your listeners who, many of whom are coaches and attempting to do good in the world and really have some impact. Congratulations to all of them. Yeah. Um, they're needed. They're needed. Don't give up. <laughs> 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 <No>. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much. And to all of those listeners, coaches or not, thank you very much for joining us one more week. We are truly humbled by your by your support. And, you know, keep on doing it. Keep on supporting us by sharing the love, by sharing this episode with anybody that you would think would benefit from it. And we shall see you here next week. Much love. Take care. Stay safe. See you soon.